Welcome to Automotive Insiders, the podcast series presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. You'll hear from automotive industry experts on the critical issues that are impacting the mobility landscape. Get actionable insights on how to thrive in Automotive 2.0. Now, here's your Automotive Insiders host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to Automotive Insiders Podcast presented by OESA. I'm producer and host Bonnie D. Graham. Very happy to be here today with Michael. He goes by the name Max Sneed. He's a partner with the law firm of Kerr, Russell, and Weber. Max, welcome to Automotive Insiders. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and what's your relationship to automotive, Max? Well, I've been a business attorney in the city of Detroit. Uh, Kerr, Russell, and Weber is the oldest law firm in the city of Detroit, so we are uh, almost by necessity very integrated into the um, automotive industry. Um, We tend to focus our practice on uh, the lower tiers and not the OEMs, Um, and we do a lot of contract negotiation, contract review, and um, you know, when the time comes, if there's a dispute, we take care of that as well. Um, and I also lead the intellectual property practice at Carussell and Weber. Very interesting. Very interesting. Personally, automotive, were you fixing cars as a as a young kid or when did automotive start to attract your attention, Max Need? Well, it has been a lifetime of being uh, around cars. My father was an engineer at Chrysler um, growing up. And uh, so it's always been a part of my life. Unfortunately, I didn't really uh, inherit his engineering skills. so. Uh, I inherited too much of my mother's uh, background in uh, in language and uh, and uh, in other kinds of um, less technical fields. So um, my skills translated better to uh, being a lawyer than being an engineer. So I couldn't fo- follow my father's footsteps, but uh, definitely been around the Detroit market and uh, cars, you know, as long as I can remember. Fascinating. Thank you very much. I always ask that question because people in they they like to know what the background is uh, and and what your involvement is. And I know you work with OESA very closely. Max, we have a couple of important topics to cover here. I'm looking at notes you sent me before we started the show, and I'm just going to read something and I want you to explain it, unpack it, and break it down. So you're going to talk about how have force majeure clauses been applied to COVID-19. So why don't we start with a level set? Why don't you define force? Majeure, where are these clauses? How does this impact suppliers? And then we can apply it to COVID 19. Go ahead, Max. Sure. So, force majeure is a French term uh, in in a contract. Often the clause will be set out as a force majeure clause, but not always. Sometimes it will be a force majeure clause, but by a different name. But the principle of it is uh, the parties agree by contract that if some unexpected event comes up that precludes performance by one of the parties, uh, that party cannot be held liable for its performance, and uh, any breach of the contract will be essentially excused. Um, force majeure contra- uh, clauses in contracts are very common. been dealing with them my entire career, and frankly, until recently, they've almost never been an issue. Um, they're always in the contract. You always negotiate them as part of the contract. But until COVID-19 came along, um, really, I can only remember a few instances or is even brought up. And uh, starting in March of 2020, 
Uh, it's been an incredibly hot topic, and we have dealt with on all sides of the issue, um, whether it was somebody trying to enforce a contract against somebody who couldn't perform, or if it's somebody who uh, is having uh, problems with its other side of the contract, trying to force it to perform when it just can't due to governmental uh, regulations, lack of, uh, of workforce availability. Um, but it is suddenly uh, this clause that was always kind of there in the background and just uh, sitting there unused has suddenly become uh, very well used. Um, and to, um, to further the, um, the background of a force majeure clause, typically force majeure uh, clauses will be written such that they only come into play if the performance is impossible. So a lot of the times uh, we have people approaching us uh, trying to fit a force majeure clause into a situation where performance hasn't really become impossible. It just became a lot more expensive, a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult. Uh, and so, you know, the force majeure clauses that parties would like to have apply don't always apply. It's a pretty high standard to invoke, invoke a force majeure clause. Very, very interesting. Now, where would this clause be found? Was it in a contract between a supplier and a manufacturer? Uh, would it be in, in, is it a normal part of anything in automotive industry? Uh, tell me a little bit more, Max. Sure. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a standard clause. There's uh, at, at the back half of a contract, the first half will have the kind of uh, negotiated terms, price quantity, uh, you know, all the, all the things that the parties are, are specific to that, uh, that contract. But more broadly, in the second half of the contract, it's what is sometimes called boilerplate language. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the force majeure clause is often found, in the boilerplate. Um, in the automotive industry, and in particular if you're dealing with an OEM, um, they're going to have, um, most of the time, uh, they're going to try to impose their own standard terms and conditions. And uh, not surprisingly, those standard terms and conditions are one-sided. And uh, there are times when a force majeure clause will be written only to benefit one party. And so there might be a situation where a supplier, is uh, its performance is rendered impossible, and they go to look at the standard terms and conditions of an OEM, and those standard terms and conditions might allow the OEM to uh, excuse its performance for a force majeure situation, uh, such as we can't do this because the governor has shut down our, uh, our manufacturing plant. But, uh, you know, the most egregious ones, the most one-sided ones will not give the same benefit to the supplier. Interesting. While you're speaking, Max, I'm thinking of what we, in insurance policies, we talk about an act of God. You know, what? why did the flood happen? Why did a tree fall on my house? Is that an insurable event that will be covered? Uh, COVID, does that apply to uh, it, disruption, 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 but by whom, how, where, for, what was it caused by? We still haven't figured that out yet. So talk to me about now force majeure. You mentioned starting in March, these clauses were starting to be enforced, but what what are the possibilities that, that a, a court or a, a legal legal panel would say, but you couldn't help being shut down because there is a pandemic? How does How does that work, Max? Yep, you, you nailed uh, nailed it on the head with a couple of ways. There, um, an act of God is is almost always uh, 
what a force majeure uh, triggers a force majeure. Mm-hmm. And act of God is often then followed up by some specifics and things like earthquake, flood, um, and then sometimes some things are excluded um, from being called a force majeure, such as a labor shortage or a strike. Um, you know, some contracts will explicitly exclude uh, things like that. So an act of God, another thing that's very common and is um, quite um, applicable in the, in the COVID situation is uh, governmental action. And most, not all, force majeure clauses will um, excuse performance if, if performance was made impossible or illegal by an act, a governmental act. And again, this has never come up in my career until now. But now uh, we have lots of executive orders across the country and particularly in March and April, um, almost all industry was shut down by government decree. And so even if a supplier wanted very badly to open its production and supply parts uh, to its, either its tier one or to the OEM, um, it couldn't. It would be violating an executive order of that particular state. That's a really, really good argument to invoke a force majeure clause. If the uh, purchaser says, I need these parts, you promised to get me these parts. And the supplier said, I just can't do it. It would be illegal. That is exactly the type of situation where force majeure falls under it. Now, uh, since then, mm-hmm. um, it's gotten a lot grayer because most manufacturing is open, but there's also a shortage of labor. Um, if there is an outbreak, uh, if there is a situation where um, employees are happy collecting unemployment and not that eager to come back to work, either for safety reasons or monetary reasons, if you have a supplier who is allowed by the government to supply parts, but that supplier's um, manufacturing process has gotten a lot more expensive, a lot slower, all of the procedures in place to keep workers safe makes it a lot more expensive to supply the parts. Those are probably not force majeure situations. The difficulty, the greater expense is not the same thing as saying it was impossible. And so now, uh, whereas in March and April, we had really, really good arguments for force majeure. um, Lately, it's been a lot grayer. Thank you. This is absolutely fascinating, Max. Let's look toward the future. I think we all are looking toward a future. We don't know. Some people say it's the new normal. I call it the next abnormal. I I don't know what we're looking for. We never expected to be in a pandemic. We never expected it to last this long. We never expected anything. In real estate, it used to be location, location, location. And now in the world, it's disruption, disruption, disruption. So lessons learned from now, from what's been happening, you mentioned starting in March with the force majeure contract or clauses rather, how will these be written or I'm going to just use the should word. How should they be written going forward? Let's say that uh, a, let's say a contract is up and it's ready to be renegotiated. Let's say a newcomer comes into the supplier arena and they want to protect themselves or do business a certain way. If from your legal background, what and being present in what in our pandemic, how would you advise or what should they do differently with force majeure? Will it exist? Talk to me. It's a very um, situation specific question, and it depends on who 
is negotiating a contract, who has the bargaining power. And so if you have a situation where you are a supplier and you know COVID's out there and you don't know what's going to happen next, will there be a second wave? Will there be a second government shutdown? If you're that supplier and you don't know if there's going to be a COVID-related disruption going forward, you're going to want a very specific clause in there saying uh, it is a force majeure event if you know, the COVID-19 pandemic um, you know, renders my, my performance impossible, if there's another government-mandated shutdown, if, and, and as broadly as you can, even include things like labor shortages, specifically as a force majeure event. Now, that's easy to say from the supplier's perspective. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you are the purchaser, uh, you are going to be in a situation where you want the contract to say, hey, look, we both know there's a pandemic. It's been going on for six months. We are not going to let you use that as an excuse. You know exactly what the situation is. You know that there's COVID-19 out there. You're still signing this contract. And by signing this contract, you acknowledge that you will be able to perform, even though you know that the, the, mm-hmm. the pandemic is out there. So it really depends on who you are, what your concerns are, and in uh, your bargaining power. So a supplier is going to want a broader force majeure clause in light of a pandemic. And meanwhile, the, uh, the purchaser is going to want to exclude, specifically exclude um, COVID-19 as a legitimate uh, force majeure event. Interesting. Pre-existing condition, right? It's- yeah, and that's it. You know, the parties, when you sign a contract, you have uh, the other party expects you to perform um, based on everything you know at the time. Force majeure was intended to address situations the parties weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. And so it's legitimate for the purchaser to say, hey, if you can't do this in a pandemic world, then don't sign the contract. Um, it's just as reasonable for the supplier to say, well, if everything stays the same, I can supply you. But if there's a second wave, if there's a second government shutdown, I don't know if I can. So again, as with almost any contract anybody's ever negotiated, it comes down Mm -hmm. to bargaining power. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Max. This is interesting. Uh, In the time we have left, I want to ask you about a couple of things in my notes here. There's something called the battle of the forms. I'm sure you have something interesting to say about that. And the movement toward master agreements. Can you level set for me, please? What is this? Sure. So uh, we referenced a few minutes ago the situation of uh, a, an OEM's standard terms and conditions that'll just be plastered on the back of, uh, of a purchase order. And for most of my career, the suppliers just had to swallow that. It wasn't very favorable. It was <laughs> very one-sided, but um, less so among actual OEMs, but more among the tiers um, they're starting to go to a master agreement model. And that is a negotiated agreement. There are some boilerplate uh, type terms that are pretty well accepted by both parties. There are, um, there are uh, kind of templates or forms or a basic model of a supply agreement that is even-handed. And those can be taken and negotiated from there. And it's just so much easier uh, to have an actual agreement. If you don't, uh, have an actual negotiated master agreement, and then each time there's a new um, part, a new component, or a new aspect, you can issue a new purchase order that will incorporate the negotiated master agreement. Otherwise, the battle of the forms you referenced comes into play. You'll have the um, 
purchaser send out a request for a quotation and it'll say uh, purchaser's terms and conditions apply. Then you'll have the supplier sent out his quotation and that quotation will have the supplier's terms and conditions and say only supplier's terms and conditions shall apply. The purchaser will then accept that quotation, but it will say only, again, only purchaser's terms and conditions apply. And both parties go off on their merry way as if they have a contract. But what are the terms of that contract? It's called a battle of the forms. Purchaser has its terms and conditions. It says apply. The supplier says my terms and conditions are the only ones that apply. And now you really don't know what the contract is, and yet both parties move along as if there's a contract. Uh, the Uniform Commercial Code addresses this and in an analysis that gets incredibly complicated. Um, you know, there are ways courts will then try to pick out which terms and conditions were actually agreed to, which ones uh, knock each other out, which terms knock each other out. And that is, parties are starting to realize that's a really messy way to do business. Um, it's good for lawyers, but if there's ever a dispute, it just gets really, really messy to figure out which terms actually apply. Max Need, fascinating topic, absolutely fascinating. The world lives by contracts. We used to live by handshakes and maybe signing a rock in the cave or, or a feather in an arrow or something, and now it's contract. It keeps, keeps you in business. Max, any uh, final thoughts on, on automotive from your vantage point of working as an attorney in this field? What do you think? I just want to go back to one uh, question you asked that I didn't really answer, and that is um, – with the force majeure clauses, um, you know, does COVID-19 apply? So far, and it's still been new enough, litigation is extremely slow. Uh, so far, the force majeure clauses have been used as leverage. Um, one party invokes it, and so far we've had lots and lots of people invoking force majeure, but they've been used as negotiating tools. So, um, you know, they, the parties have just sat down and they have said, okay, we're both in a difficult spot here. Um, if we were to litigate and try to force you to supply, um, you would invoke the force majeure clause. So let's see if we can work something out. So to date, um, we don't really know what the courts are going to do with this stuff, but the threat of it has um, kind of led to some renegotiation and some rethinking. Um, and so it's, it's a position to take, but it's also a good bargaining chip if uh, if the situation uh, can be worked out short of litigation, uh, that's always our recommendation. Appreciate that very much. A little kindness. Oh, it's business. Can we be kind in business? Well, maybe we can be that too. That would be a lesson from the pandemic. Max Need, partner in the law firm of Kerr, Russell and Weber. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insights. It's an interesting topic and I'm sure the debate about force majeure will go on for a long, long time. So, Max, why don't you wave goodbye? This is Bonnie D. Graham for Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Everybody take care and be well. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Listen at your convenience to industry thought leaders as they discuss the ever-evolving industry and how companies can thrive in the new mobility landscape. All episodes are on demand on the Voice America Business Channel and at OESA.org. 
Automotive Insider is presented by the Original Equipment Suppliers Association.